This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hello, this is Austin Real Estate Investing. This is your host, Jordan Moorhead. Today, I have local real estate agent, Ryan Kelly on. How are you doing, Ryan? Hey, I'm doing great, Jordan. Great to have you. I know we've talked quite a bit before and I know what you do, but I'm excited to have you tell other people about what you do and how you're able to help real estate investors in Austin. So I guess that leads me to my first question. Who are you and what, how are you involved in real estate investing? Yeah, uh, Texas native, born and raised in Waco and uh, came to Austin in the early 90s to go to the University of Texas. Got started in real estate pretty late. I'm a local real estate investor and uh, realtor, been in the business now just coming up on five years. Uh, so we own properties in South Austin and also work with a majority of my clients being real estate investors, kind of looking for different opportunities in the market. And uh, it's a really exciting town. And as you and I were talking about just a few moments ago, there, there's just so many headlines driving Austin right now. Sometimes it's hard to uh, point to just one when talking with clients. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge struggle for me. So, you know, Ryan, you said you're from the area, but you know, as you know, everybody and lots of people you work with, people can invest wherever they want in the country. Why do you choose to work, yep. live, and invest in Austin? So some, some people have the old cliche, invest where you know, invest in what you know. So for me, you know, I know the town really well. I know a lot of the neighborhoods. Uh, so I'm really comfortable kind of understanding, you know, not only what's happening in that neighborhood now, but just having that gut instinct of what's coming. Um, you know, having seen Austin, I think for, you know, since the mid nineties, when it really wasn't known as a global tech city, it was still kind of the, you know, big hippie college government town that it was in the mid nineties. It did have semiconductors, but it turned really hard when we hit around 2000 software became the play. And that's when I think Austin was already growing, but when software combined with the hardware took off, you know, Austin has just been on a trajectory, uh, you know, rocket ship trajectory, I think, since that time. Well, I want to invest in towns where I think it's going to have that type of tailwind with commercial industry, with big business. You know, Austin's going to be that kind of town. And so for me, that's one of the reasons that I invest here. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, you know, we talked about why you invest in Austin, but why do you invest in real estate? So how did you get started real estate investing and what attracted you to it? I'm kind of a late bloomer. Uh, you know, I, I really focused, I was in the corporate world before this. You know, I started my career after college in uh, TV journalism. So I used to be a TV anchor and reporter and did that unpaid job for a while. And then, uh, you know, moved into corporate communications. And that's where you learn all about 401ks and kind of investing in stocks. So did that for a while. And honestly, I was going to be a, I was really studying to become a certified financial planner, kind of go more the Wall Street, help people with their retirement accounts. Well, I remember having a conversation with my father-in-law uh, and they've, you know, he's a real estate investor and he's, he owns 
at the time, I think he owned close to 20 doors in College Station. And I remember it was a Thanksgiving and I was trying to figure out my next step. And I was just curious, hey, how much passive income are you really making from all these? Is it a headache? Do you like it? And, you know, in a nutshell, he was making six figures of passive income off these college rentals in College Station. And it was like that light bulb moment where it's like, you know, I need to look into this. Why am I not thinking about real estate more? Honestly, it was like two months. I turned on a dime. I just literally went full bore into real estate, got my license, you know, jumped out of a corporate job and went full on full time into real estate. And it just took off. And, you know, both my wife and I are committed to the goals. And so we want to build a portfolio just like he did, where one day we're going to have enough doors, creating enough passive income. And, you know, you don't need Wall Street. Wall Street becomes icing on the cake. It doesn't have to be your pension plan. Absolutely. And I, I have a similar philosophy. I still utilize tax advantage plans myself so I can save money on taxes because yep. you know, God knows we pay enough as real estate agents. But I, I love having that depreciation from the real estate and those tax advantage plans to help tamp down my taxable income a little bit here. And there's nothing wrong with both. You know, I tell people yeah. you are probably going to start your investment career for most people putting money in Wall Street accounts. You're going to buy, mm -hmm. buy stocks, 401k, Roth IRA, something like that. It's a great way to build up money that you're going to be using for retirement. The challenge is when you start running the numbers, you get to an age where you start going, I can't live the lifestyle I want at some point just off stocks. It's just, unless you are really just dumping tons of money. So what's going to create cash flow, help me build wealth, become a little more passive, but more importantly, you control the asset. You get to control it. You're making the decisions. You get to decide when it buy it sells. You know, you can make improvements to it. You just can't do that with Apple stock, for example. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of it, which is why we're all interested in real estate is leverage. You know, I can't go borrow somebody else's money to buy stocks for myself. I have to have that money to buy those stocks. Whereas in real estate, I can borrow bank money or hard money or do, you know, private money from family to go buy real estate that completely benefits me as long as I can pay that money back. So, you know, you get a lot of advantages in real estate that you're not going to find in some other asset classes. Yeah, absolutely. With most stocks, you only see the appreciation aspect. So it's, it's fun to look at your phone and say, oh, you know, my, my funds have gone up this amount this day, but yet literally, you know, we're, we're taping this the day after the election in 2020. Stocks go up and down depending on what's happening with that. Yeah. Um, a tweet can send your stocks up and down. It's just so, there's so many variables that can change the value of your stocks. Most stocks don't pay dividends, so there isn't any cash flow from stocks. So why I love real estate is, you know, of course you get the cash flow. I think that's really just the, the big part of real estate. You get the passive income like you talked about, but you also get the appreciation. You also get the tax benefits. You also get to pay down a loan, the leverage you used over time. That's right. And, well, I, you know, some, I tell clients, if you want $300,000 of Apple stock, how much money do you need? Yeah. And their answer is usually, I need $300,000. Well, if you want a $300,000 house, how much money do you need? Well, depending on how you're going to buy it, you could put down as little as maybe ten dollars or $15,000 if you yeah. use an FHA loan. Or if you're a veteran, you might even get it at 0% down. But even if you're a standard investor putting 25% down, you only need $75,000. 
to get a $300,000 asset. And if managed properly, that's the only money you're going to, uh, you know, some closing costs, maybe a few early repairs. But after that, the cash flow from that property should pay all the rest. And now you own a $300,000 asset for $75,000 and change. And it's going to give you all the benefits you just talked about. Yeah. And I, I have total control over that asset. That's another reason I love real estate. I can't call Apple and say, Hey, you know, I really don't like the new design on the iPhone 12. You should tweak this right. a little bit, or maybe you should focus on making the battery life longer. And I think we're going to sell more that way. I have no control. I just put That's the right. money in and I'm along for the ride. Yeah. Even with your vote, you know, as a stockholder, you do get to vote maybe, but those votes probably aren't going to add up and beat the hedge funds that also own that Apple stock. No, you don't own enough. When you're the owner of a duplex, like you're talking about a $300,000 duplex, you're a 100% owner. That's right. You get to pick what the lawn looks like. You get to pick what the exterior, the interior, the finishes, everything, how it's managed. It's all your control. That's why I love real estate. Agreed. So, you know, we, we always ask our our guests about their worst deal. And in your case, it may be not your worst deal, but the worst deal you worked on and some of the biggest lessons you've learned from that. So what is the, the worst deal you've seen or some lessons you'd like to pass along to listeners? Uh, worst deal. Yeah. None of them have been terrible. Uh, I do have some clients. We bought a house this year where, you know, after we bought it, we did the inspections. It did have a lot of issues. We negotiated down on the price. You know, we got some repair credits and fixed some issues, but even after buying it, you know, stuff kept popping up and we mm -hmm. kept finding issues with that house. So I continue to work with my clients. You know, the good news is they're settling into the house now. It's, it's pretty stable, but there were just stuff, you know, stuff that's going to happen. And it's a reminder that at the end of the day, you're buying a depreciating pile of assets, you know, uh, an air conditioning unit, uh, tile, countertops, you know, a hot water heater. None of these things go up in value. None of them. But the combination of them on top of a really expensive piece of land is what makes real estate go up in value. And so the challenge is, as best as I can do as a, as a real estate agent as, and, and you as well, is we, we, we just want to give our clients the best picture that we can of that asset. But no, I can't tell you everything. I didn't dig under the house. I, I may not know what the pipes look like. I may not have measured every ounce of insulation in the house. There's all, you know, I can't look behind the walls and see wires. So there are going to be issues that pop up. So the, the key is be prepared for that and, and really have some cash reserves going into any deal so that you can address them and not get into a situation where you have to make a bad decision. Um, our investments have done pretty well. We don't have a ton. We have three doors in Austin right now. But, um, you know, some of that is just we can be picky. I don't need to go buy 10 things a year. I can buy one a year, stay on that track for a while, and, you know, still hit our goals. So, you know, with, with clients, Cash flow is getting thinner. Uh, you know, the yields are compressed, especially on a year like this where you get very high appreciation, but the rent growth is fairly flat uh, in our market because COVID, there's some other reasons, but, you know, you're going to have years like that. Uh, so I wouldn't call it a bad deal, but clearly we're trying to get creative with clients and find deals that, you know, you're going to have to squeak into this year, hit the base hit, get a single, but I can promise you if the market stays attractive, that single will, you'll walk around the bases. You will make your way around in a short amount of time if you really stick with it and operate that property as effectively as you can. Absolutely. And I, I think I want to talk about that a little bit too. So, you know, you talked about, you know, the market staying good. And in Austin, 
Um, obviously, neither of us have a crystal ball, and it's hard to tell what the market's going to do over a period of time. There's so many factors there. Yeah. But if we're just looking at Austin, they expect the population to double in the next 20 years. There's more than 100 people a day moving here. You know, both of us get calls from people from other states trying to move here or invest here every day. Yep. And it's just, it, it can cover up a, a bad deal even. So, you know, I had a uh, property I sold down the street from where I am right now in East Austin. That Same thing you were talking about. I did an inspection. The inspector told me what he knew, which he can't see through walls. He can't see under the, the ground in the house. He, he couldn't see everything. And then even maybe some of the work that was done after I rehabbed the property wasn't done 100% right. And I'm relying on a contractor to do that. So I can't tell you what's right and what's not. Right. But there were some issues. that. But because the market is so crazy right now, it covered that up. And I still made a big profit when I sold. So, yeah, I had some headaches or a lot of pains with it. But because I bought in the right space at the right time, I still made a bunch of money when I sold the place. So, um, you know, I think that, that a lot of the questions we get as realtors is, hey, where do I buy? How do you see the Austin market going in the next couple of years? Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Or, you know, how do you counsel people on where to look in Austin? And then what's your your outlook on the Austin market in the next few years? And that being said, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball. I know you yep. can't tell what's going to happen, but just from what's yep. happening right now, what do you think? I'll tell you how happen? I answer the question. That's a good, good way to do it. So, and not only that, I get the big question of, okay, well, COVID is real. So are we going to have this wave of foreclosures and, you know, mm-hmm. forbearance and eviction yep. moratoriums? What's going to happen next year? So I, I had the uh, fortunate opportunity to listen to someone smarter than myself yesterday. And I, I like this guy a lot. I've listened to him a lot. Uh, his name's David Tandy with Texas National Title. He's an economist, and he does great presentations with thousands of slides on all kinds of economic data. Basically, his the direction that the data is showing is that Austin is not going to slow down. Austin is continuing to see, in fact, this year in 2019, uh, sorry, 2020, it's, it's clearly going to set a record for the number of companies bringing more jobs to Austin. In fact, it may double what we saw in 2019. So that's jobs. Uh, the second thing is we have housing inventory, which you and I have felt, you know, extremely this year, where we've dropped to levels that we have not seen in 60 years. And that's not just an Austin story; that is a national story. But we are seeing levels in Austin that we've never seen this low of inventory before. So even if we get double the inventory that we have now, triple the inventory that we have right now, we're arguably still a fairly decent market. You know, it's still, it's not going to switch to a buyer's market. It would just be a softer seller's market, maybe two, three, four months of inventory. That's healthy. That's a good market. I'd be happy to work in that market. I think people would be happy to buy a home and invest in that market. So it's not going to flip overwhelmingly. In fact, just to give you a data point, uh, and this was something he shared on the presentation, luxury technically is almost always in a buyer's market. Luxury is very expensive. There's very limited buyer pool. And if too many properties list that are that expensive, you're going to have a buyer's market. There's more properties than buyers. In Austin right now, we are down to three months of inventory on the luxury level. These are the expensive properties and they're seeing multiple offers. They're getting, you know, 
a lot of attraction and selling in, in a, the fewest amount of days. So you're talking about there really is no segment of the market that is seeing a buyer's market or seeing any softening. Maybe some downtown condos aren't selling as well because the downtown market, like any urban metro area, is probably you know, not the best part of the metro at the moment. But again, there's so many jobs and things moving here. So that is the loose way that I would answer the crystal ball. He also talked about eviction moratoriums and forbearance or foreclosure. So Jordan, you and I know this, maybe some of the listeners don't, is that in Texas, we have very specific laws in our constitution that do not allow homeowners to take out huge chunks of their home equity. It caps you at 80%. So if you buy a house and you want to do a cash out refinance or you have an investment property and you wanted to take out money, you're going to be limited up to that, that ceiling. You got to leave 20% equity in there. So what happens if we have a downturn? Well, if you're in another state where you can take out 95% of your equity or 100% of your equity, you could go underwater. And now all of a sudden you have to short sell or go into foreclosure or something like that. In Texas, it's highly unlikely that we're going to see big numbers like that. And this is coming from, from David Tandy, for example. He also said that our eviction, uh, not eviction moratorium, the forbearance numbers are steadily coming down. So even though, yes, people had to do that, most of them filed that in April, May, kind of beginning of coronavirus, they're starting to see those numbers come down. Clients are working, you know, with their mortgage lenders to, you know, work on their mortgage and try to play catch up and do those kind of things. So we're seeing that. And then on the eviction moratoriums, again, that one's a little harder to read. Uh, I think we'll feel a little bit of that, but in talking with my clients, you, different people in the market, I'm not hearing massive amounts of tenants not being able to pay rent. There are some issues, but not a huge number. So none of, and by the way, if you are a tenant, you don't have a house to sell. So you're not going to have inventory that you can put on the market next year. So really you're looking at what's going to bring more inventory to the market. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't, we're either going to need demand to slow down, which is how many people move to Austin every day. You're going to need demand to slow down, or you're going to need Austin homeowners who want to move across town. I think that's the demographic that stopped is, hey, Jordan, I want to move from your neighborhood over to this neighborhood across town. I need to sell this house to get over there. Well, you know what? That neighborhood just looks like it's going too high in value. You know what? I'm going to refinance my house and just remodel this one. I think that's the demographic in town that didn't move. And I think that's what's suppressing the inventory. I would like to see that group be able to feel like they can move next year. They can sell their house, move to a new house. That would bring some more inventory on the market. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest problem we're running into is, is inventory. People, everybody knows it's a constricted housing market, but I don't think you know unless you look at the numbers like we do. It's, we would need a five to 600% increase and inventory to be at like a balanced market. You know yeah. what they say a balanced market is. We're that much lower. And you know, I know you put offers on houses too, where there's a dozen plus offers on every home, all I text over every asking. Listing agent. Yeah, I mean, I text every listing agent on every showing I go to before we even go, hey, how many offers do you have? Yeah. You know, you just, not do you have offers, just how many offers do you have right now? Mm -hmm. I know you came on the market two hours ago. How many offers do you have? I just want to be able to give my clients or myself some bearing on the speed at which that seller may make a decision because the seller is the one who makes the decision, not the agent. So even if the agent says, oh, seller's not going to make a decision till Friday or, 
you know, next Monday, seller can decide whenever they want. And mm-hmm. if they get the right offer in their pocket, they could make a call that night or that afternoon. So I'm, I'm of the belief that with my clients, hey, put the offer in where you want it. If you want to fight for that house, here's what I could recommend. But if you also just want to have your name in the hat and see, maybe they are bluffing. Maybe they didn't get the top. Maybe they got two offers and they weren't good. You know, there could be situations where you can get a house at a reasonable price just because they have offers doesn't always mean it's going to sell 50 over. Some are, you know, some properties are definitely getting that activity and and some others are selling at list price. Some are still selling below list price if they price too high, which also happens in a hot market. You and I are still seeing there are properties sitting on the market three, four, five months. You just have to try to figure out if the seller is motivated to sell. Yeah, there's a duplex right up the Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. So I, I have a property under contract for a client right now that's roughly twenty grand under list, and like you said, there's property sitting. There's a duplex a few blocks from me. It's been sitting for about six months now. So yeah, it happens. And yeah, it's, they just um, want too much money, and you can't blame the sellers too. They're they're testing the market, you know. But you, I, I I tell my seller clients. You will know if your price was right or wrong the first weekend. Yeah. You don't need to wait. You don't need to wait till the next weekend. You missed it or you got it. I promise you, we're either going to sell it for multiple offers or somehow we missed it. We're a little off. Go ahead and adjust your price the next week and be done the next weekend. You don't need to wait. The buyers are there. The market is there. Get the price right. It'll sell quick. And I, I don't think a lot of people understand too that as real estate agents, it's always a tug of war depending on who the seller is. We might say, "Hey, this house is worth four hundred and thirty thousand dollars," and they say, "No, you know, I want to list it at four eighty. I saw a house down the street for four eighty that sold." So, as a buyer, like you said, you just need to make the offer that you're comfortable with and see what happens. That's all you can do. You don't know who came up with that price. You don't know what that price is based on. It might be based on what somebody's Uncle Bill said. That's right. There's so many factors there. The other thing I tell sellers and my investor clients is the list price is not what the house is worth. Mm -hmm. The list price is purely two people, the listing agent and the seller or sellers who sat in a room one evening, looked at comps and came up with a price. That's, That's the only people who decided that number. And so the list price is advertising. If they do it well, they put it in the right place, they get a lot of activity, and the market will decide what it's worth. If they got it wrong, they will get no, you know, little amount of activity, or they'll get a lot of showings and no offers. And again, the market will decide what it's worth. Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here, and I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, That would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing, and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. And so, you know, it's hard sometimes when clients are running numbers on spreadsheets and you're working off a list price and, you know, sometimes it doesn't look good on paper. Mm -hmm. And what I say is, let's take a step back. Let's see what we think it's actually worth. You know, maybe it's worth less than that list price because it hasn't sold. Or maybe we need to factor in 20 grand over because that's actually what you're going to end up buying that property for. If you win, you know, that's, that's where you need to try to price your spreadsheet. And let's also look at the rents and make sure, especially on multifamily, like duplex and fourplexes, where they might be under renting that property. 
Let's mm-hmm. look and see what the market should be for that property and put that number in your spreadsheet. You know, you can look, you can work off what the seller has provided or what the current landlord is renting, but that doesn't mean that's what the market rent for that property is worth. And that's where it gets a little tricky uh, in the market is sometimes you have to factor a higher list price, but you also may need to factor in higher rent too. Yeah. And that's always, you know, you bring up a good point there. You really need to figure out what the rents are. That's really my formula when analyzing a property. I don't look at anything until I know what the rent should be because you run into this same as I do. The majority of the time, the rents are not where they should be. It might just be because they kept them low because they had tenants in there for a long time that were, they're great tenants and I don't want to get rid of them. I hear that all the time. So Figure out what you need to do to get the rents up to where they should be after you figure out what the rent should be, and then you're able to make your offer based on that. The numbers that are on the listing are not always the numbers you need to find out. You need to figure out what it could be, what you need to do to get it there, and then you can make an offer. And then the third number too, and especially again with um, with multifamily, let's say duplexes, for example, in Austin specifically, the vast majority of duplexes were built in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Mm-hmm. Some of them were built in the 90s, and there's a handful that have been built after that. But the vast majority of duplexes were built in that era. So you're looking at properties that are now 40 to 60 years old. They've been owned by investors for most of that time who just by nature are not into doing big remodels. In fact, you and I both might be the exception to that rule. I don't yeah. mind doing a big remodel on these properties because I know it's worth the value. You raise the equity, you can raise the rents, but most investors are hoping they can buy it, just keep fixing stuff, you know, not updated. And so what happens is they get run down. Uh, the properties tend to need a lot of capital work, but at the same time, just like you mentioned, they're not raising the rents by the time, and the, the clients are getting older, you know, they've probably paid off that mortgage, they get comfortable with the rent amount. And so they don't feel in the need to raise the rent. They might only raise it if the taxes start, you know, pressing on them. But otherwise, by the time they go to sell, they're selling because the property needs a big capital redo. You know, it needs to be remodeled. They're selling it because they're tired of dealing with what's become lower and lower tenants because they're not raising the rents. And so that's the opportunity, I think, for clients today in this market And that's the type of duplex we bought in July is we bought a duplex that was built in the late 90s. So it wasn't too old, but the rents were easily 200 per door lower than the market value. It hadn't been updated. Uh, We've already done some capital improvements like roof and AC stuff like that. The next wave is to do the, the pretty stuff, right? The cosmetic updates, but we'll do that with the tenant's money. We're not saving up our own capital for that. We're going to let the rents build up for two or three years and use that money to remodel the duplexes. It'll pay for itself. So to me, that's, that's one of the strategies that can still work in Austin if they list the property in the right zone. So there are some duplexes asking way too much money, but uh, if we can find the right one, it's a great strategy. Absolutely. So, you know, you, you talked about a lot of inheriting other people's problems and that's where I've always found I get my best deal is, I'm picking up somebody else's issues. So either the tenants are bad or the place is in terrible shape. And my best deals have been places that are just disgusting and had the worst tenants you could ever find. And if you can deal with that for six months to a year and you get these tenants out and you get the property remodeled, you've got a great deal. Yeah. 
And then, you know, going back to maybe one of the questions you had mentioned about, so what, what are maybe out of state clients looking for in Austin? I mean, a lot of them, because that's a very hard project to do when you're from take on this big rehab or find some sort of quirky old property and deal with bad tenants and try to convert that property over the years. So a lot of out of state clients, you know, want to find something more quote turnkey or, or kind of rent ready. You know, the good news is there are properties that are in that condition. The downside is you are now competing with the retail buyer. Uh, you know, the biggest pool of retail buyers, you know, the young family who wants to live in Pflugerville or the move up buyer going over to Cedar Park or, you know, you're, you're going to be battling that. It's just compressing cash flow yields. So the hardest part I find in the market today is to find a property where with very little renovation or very little, you know, remodeling, you can put it on the market for lease and get it to give you any significant cash flow. That's probably the hardest play I feel like in the market right now. But I do have a lot of clients trying to do it. Uh, and we're finding a few properties that are working. It takes some digging. It takes putting in multiple offers out there and seeing which one sticks. But, you know, that's definitely a play I see when people say, I want to invest in the suburbs. That, je- that tends to be the play they're looking for. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, we're talking about areas here a little bit. And I know a question both of us get is, where do I buy in Austin or where, where do I avoid in Austin? And I, I have trouble answering this question, so I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah, uh, it's that it depends answer, right? Yeah. And it can get long-winded. So I try to figure out what they want to do. What is the strategy you want to do? How much do you want to roll up your sleeves? And how much do you want this to be passive? If you really just want a passive investment, we kind of need to go out. We need to go to outskirts. We need to find newer properties, newer meaning like 1980s, 90s and newer, not the old stuff. You know, you don't want to deal with plumbing or old wiring or things under, you know, with an old house. Um, So we're looking out. I have other clients that want to be in the city. I've got clients right now. We're looking to buy properties in core neighborhoods like Crestview and Brentwood, uh, you know, find the old property that they can fix up and maybe add a second house behind, you know, if the lot's big enough, do something like that. So, you know, I personally am going to invest most likely in South Austin, not because it's the greatest location for everybody. It's what I know the best. I understand those neighborhoods, the price, what's driving people to live there. Uh, I have other clients that focus solely in North Austin. That's their zone. You know, they want to be there. They know the employers. I've got other clients that solely want to be out in the suburbs because they want something newer and they want the schools to be more consistent. So it really depends on the client's goals. They're really, you know, you and I had talked about this before. I don't really want to tell a client there's a bad place to invest because it really depends on their goals. One of the hot areas that everybody's reading in the news right now is Far East Austin and Southeast Austin. So let's talk about that just for a second. So Tesla, everybody's seen the the article, Tesla's building their big gigafactory out there on SH-130, probably not too far uh, from where you are uh, on on the east side. You know, I was talking about this with somebody on a Bigger Pockets forum this morning. There's really only two plays for an individual investor in Southeast Austin right now. Unless you want to buy land and wait, you can do that too but you're either buying a house that's already built, probably built 30 or 40 years ago, that's in a not 
great neighborhood, uh, very C-class, some of them D-class, the school ratings are not very high, so you're gonna go buy a house there and fix it up and kind of hope those neighborhoods come around, or you're buying brand new construction. You know, the neighborhoods that they're all building on the east side are brand new, master planned, but there's no amenities yet outside of those neighborhoods. No grocery store, no Walmart, no Lowe's or Home Depot or big shopping center. So the play there is, it's a long-term play. You're buying now at probably today's price. The rent's gonna be pretty shallow on its cash flow, but they haven't built that stuff yet. So when they build it, ideally you would expect those areas will come up in price because now you have those amenities close to you. And then again, with those older neighborhoods. So that's an example of Southeast Austin. Well, that's a totally different strategy, waiting for commercial to show up versus going and buying in a core neighborhood where you already know where everything is. You know where the grocery store is, where the school is, what the rating is, where the coffee shop is. You know, that's a totally different neighborhood. And you're probably not competing against new construction because there's no land. There's There's no development that can be built in that core north and south zone of Austin. It's all gonna be on the perimeter. So totally different play. So it, I, I asked the client, where do you wanna be? Do you wanna be in a mature area or do you wanna be in an up and coming, maybe path of progress area? And those are two different strategies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm on the east side. I like the path of progress, but yeah. if you go any, you go 15 minutes east to me, it's all land. Yeah, it's all land. Yeah. And, uh, but that land could become a cheap neighborhood or that land could become the headquarters of a major company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tesla. I, 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 yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, who would have predicted Tesla was going to buy, honestly, if you, you and I have probably driven past that piece of yeah. land, it's not much to look at. I mean, it's, it's kind of a scrubby piece of land, but it's huge. And so it's bigger than any of their other land uh, assets that they own. So they're, the, the secret thinking is that Tesla is bringing more than a gigafactory to Austin. We'll have to wait and see. But what's going to happen is that tollway, when they first built it, was the middle of nowhere. There was nothing out there. And everybody was like, why are you spending all this money on a road in the middle of nowhere? Well, look what's happening. It's a vacuum. It's pulling growth out east. So if, if, if people are looking for more affordable investments, uh, path of progress investments, you need to look at the roads that are going east and be in those corridors. Um, Bastrop is in Bastrop County out past the airport. You've got Taylor and Elgin a little farther north, Hutto. Uh, so you're gonna have those kind of towns on the east side of the Austin Metro that still aren't that big yet. These are small towns. They're not quite commuter towns yet, but they are going to become commuter towns over the next 10 and 20 years. Absolutely, and I think something else that's important, you know, you talk transportation with 130, Great highway, I love it. Um, you know, we just had Proposition A and Proposition B pass yesterday, Election Day, and that adds multiple commuter lines, different bus lines, light rail lines. We're working on a tunnel underneath downtown Austin. I can't visualize how that's going to happen yet, but uh, it's going to happen. So I think if you're an investor in the Austin area, you need to follow where the, the transportation corridors are going. You know, you talked about 130 being this just, it's kind of feels like a super highway on the east side. It's so fast and nice to drive on, but there's now there's going to be light rail lines shooting all throughout Austin That's and right. different commuter bus lines. If you need to get downtown, you have easy access to do that once they're done with all this. So 
and most cities build out on their rail lines, we're going to have a real amount of rail lines. Now we have one now and it's not too heavily used, but here in the next 10 or 15, maybe 20 years, you're going to see a lot change with all those rail lines being built. And I think on that point, that rail line isn't very used much because it doesn't connect anything else, right? It's just one line. But if you can add two or three lines and they do connect to each other and uh, part of that Project Connect plan, and I encourage everybody listening, you know, just go online and learn about it. If you're going to look to invest in Austin, it's going to connect to the airport. So now, no matter where you are in town, you can go to the rail, hop on that and get to the airport instead of necessarily having to taxi and Uber. Um, you know, one other thing I just thought of is, and this is not Austin specific, but we're all trying to figure out how much is work from home going to change the real estate landscape. I think in Austin, which is a very high tech city, you have a lot of people that work for, you know, these companies where those companies are the ones that you can very easily work from home. It's all software. You can work on a, com on a computer. You know, it's only going to continue to expand the suburbs. Uh, you know, I, I think I've got some clients who bought a property. These are California clients. We did, they, he never came to see the property. I did everything over video, you know, managed the home inspection contract. It's like, we just bought a piece of property. You know, for him, it wasn't sight unseen. I gave him great videos, but it wasn't, you know, being in person uh, to see that property. But it was way north, Leander. I mean, you are almost to Liberty Hill, way up 183 corridor. But we were able to buy a property, get it rented in 20 days. And, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been so far out of town, you wouldn't have even called that person an Austin investor. I mean, they would have been buying country land in the middle of nowhere. But now it's a commuter city. And for those that are interested to learn more about Leander, look at the Austin Business Journal and read some of the latest stories. There are some major developments being put in Leander. So that Cedar Park Leander corridor up in the Northwest, if you want something that's a slightly higher price point, school ratings tend to be a little higher, very family friendly area. You know, there's a ton of growth up there. In fact, I think Leander is one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. the last two or three years. And it's because they went from 20,000 people to now, I think, almost 70 or 80,000 people in like eight years. They've quadrupled in size as a city in eight years. Well, they're pumping a bunch of money up there. And it's on that light rail that you mentioned. So you can live even two or three suburbs out and be able to commute all the way downtown now, either by car or rail. That's kind of a foreign concept for, for Austin, but I think it'll become the norm over the next couple of decades. Yeah, for Texas in general. And you talked about the Austin Business Journal. I think, if, what is it, $20 a month or something? It's not too much, but you get all this information of what's happening in Austin, and you can follow it in real time every morning. They send updates, and you can read articles about, you know, what's going on with Project Connect and what business is moving to Austin next. I, I believe we'll see a wave of businesses moving to support Tesla here soon. And if you want to keep up with who's going where, you know, getting Austin Business Journal can help you quite a bit there. Absolutely. So, you know, Ryan, you're a hardworking guy. What's your best mindset advice for people? Whew. You know, it's a long game. Mm -hmm. This is not get rich quick. So set, you know, you've heard this from other people, but set your goals and understand why you're real estate investing. Are you trying to get rid of a job? Uh, you know, do you want a job? Uh, or do you want passive investments? You know, a job would be wholesaling, flipping, being a realtor like you and I, 
Those are jobs. That's a full time. I mean, I work 60, 80 hours a week. It's a job. Yeah. I make very good money, but it's a job. Or do you want investments where you're trying to create cash flow or build wealth for your family? So from a mindset point of view is don't get caught up in all the different strategies and all these different, you know, you can chase a thousand paths in real estate, but if you know why you're doing it and maybe a long-term horizon goal of where you're trying to be, use that as your compass to steer you and you won't get too distracted by all the shiny objects. Yeah. And there's a lot of them. So absolutely. You know, if you're looking to be a passive real estate investor and you want to buy properties year after year, being an agent might not be the best thing for you or being a wholesaler, you know, there's, so there's so many different strategies here. Yeah. It really helps to focus on one. And then once you get really good at one, maybe do one or two, or maybe three, but, just don't don't go after everything because you're never going to get anywhere. That's, get that's your great license advice. if you want to be a real estate agent or mm-hmm. a very consistent investor. Like if you really are buying multiple properties a year, well, you are kind of practicing real estate at that point. You know, there is value to getting your license. If you are just simply trying to save money on one deal, I can assure you, you're not counting all the effort it's going to take to have the license, go through the studies work with your broker, write contracts, like, you know, it, you will save the money, honestly, working with a decent real estate agent, focus on the deal, run your numbers and save yourself the headache. But there is definitely value to a license if you are going to really have significant time that you're spending in the industry. But yeah, I hear that sometimes. Um, and then also I ask people, do you want an investment or do you want a job? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want a job, you can be a wholesaler. You can be a flipper, which is essentially a custom developer. That's what a flipper is, right? So, you know, and I know people doing great with those, but they are jobs. They are a lot of work. You have to calculate all the money you're going to spend on marketing and materials and time and hard money costs and all that. It is a very intensive, high touch job. Whereas if you want passive investments, that's a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you want to make decisions based on that. Do I want to hire a property manager or not? Well, that's going to ter- determine how passive you, you know, you want to be. Um, you know, so you just have to ask, you know, do I want to be the person who goes and repairs things or am I going to hire a contractor to go do that? That's going to decide if you want a job or an investment. So, you know, I try to ask my clients some of those questions just to get an idea of how much they want to work at it or how much they want to, you know, just treat it like a business, hire everything out and run the numbers that way. Absolutely. It's great advice. So what's your favorite business or mindset book, Ryan? You know, if people want to get more in this investor mindset, what would you recommend? I love reading and uh, I've got little kids who have kind of chewed up some of my time, but uh, I've got a number of books next to my bedside. You know, I read this last year, Set for Life by Scott Trench. Great book. Um, it's one of the Bigger Pockets books. I really like that. It kind of goes along with a rich dad, poor dad theme, but mm-hmm. it's a little more practical. So rich dad, poor dad's kind of your high level, you know, thinking, whereas set for life is like, do this first, save $25,000. Next step, do this. To me, that's a great book. If you haven't gotten started or if, especially if you're younger, um, that's a great book to read. Um, uh, trying to think what else, the other one that helped me in business, I don't know if it's a mindset book, but profit first, uh, yeah, Mike McKellowitz, I think his name is, is a great book. Um, if you're just not great with money, uh, that might be a great book to help you just kind of organize. I organize my business that way. 
Uh, and so that way, as you're making income, you've pre-assigned your money to go to these different tasks. And at any moment, you can log into your bank accounts and go, that's how much money I have. That's how much I have to invest in that house or to go on that vacation or pay for my business expenses. So Profit First is another good book. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a good point there, too. I, I know Wendy pops on raves about Set for Life all the time. Um, I think that's a phenomenal book. Um, you have to get your finances in order if you want to be a real estate investor. You're not just going to start investing in real estate and throwing money at the wall and thinking that all this money is going to stick in an account and you're going to have all these down payments for houses. If you don't have your finances in order, it's going to take forever to buy a house. Even if you buy your first duplex, let's say, if you want to continue to scale your portfolio, you need to have your finances in order and be able to chunk down savings for down payments every month so you can keep going. Saving up the down payments is the hardest thing. And until you have your finances in order and you've just got a, a leaky finance structure, it, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, sometimes real estate sounds exciting, but quite honestly, if it's working well, it should be really boring. Boring. I mean, it should just be numbers every month, slowly adjusting on a spreadsheet or in software or whatever you use to track your accounts. Hey, I made a little more equity this year. I paid off a little more tax this year. I made some more rent income this year. I fixed some stuff. You know, I mean, it's it shouldn't be crazy. I mean, people get excited with, again, flipping and stuff. And that is, it can be very exciting. But but again, the long-term buy and hold investing or burr investing or, you know, air, running an Airbnb or anything like that, it's a long game. It is a long game of making a little more than you spend over and over and over and over and over again to let the wealth build up. And so I agree with you completely, cash reserves. There's a guy named David Osborne, and mm -hmm. I don't know if he coined it or if he just is borrowing it from somebody else, but he said you have to do 10 and 20, or sorry, 20 and 10. And what he means by that is at the end of the day, no matter what your strategy is, you have to start with money. You have to start with money. In other words, you got to work hard. You have to, you have, it's something, whatever it is in your life you're doing, you have to work hard, make enough money so that you have profit. You're going to use that profit to invest in real estate, which can make you more profit. And so somewhere the money has to start. If you don't have it, you at least need the hustle and then combine that with somebody else who has money uh, and become a partnership, something like that. But somebody has to have money. Uh, to, to get into real estate. And so I definitely encourage you, you know, focus on your debts, focus on having some savings and, and understand that it doesn't have to start fast. You don't need to have 20 doors your first year. You know, you could have one door every other year or every third year, and you could end up with a really amazing portfolio after 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you're talking about making profit, um, if you're making profit and you're not setting it aside right, like profit first teaches, it doesn't go anywhere. So, you know, yep. make profit, but have that system to put that profit down towards next, your next down payment or your reserves or whatever you got to do. So um, money gives also, you decisions. Money gives you options to make decisions. If you don't have it, you don't have a lot of options. But the more money you have, the more decisions you can make. So always think of money as a way to give yourself more options mm -hmm. to do different things in real estate. Absolutely. And people with money probably aren't going to take much interest in you if you don't have control of your own finances. So yep. it's a twofold thing. You know, yeah, you don't have to have all the money, but 
if I'm investing with you and you have no control over your finances, I'm going to look the other way. It's hard, <laughs> which is why I want to point my clients to lenders first. Let's mm -hmm. talk. If you're going to borrow money, let's go talk to them first because that's the bullet in the gun. If they can't give you the bullet, the gun's not going to work. So yeah. you've got to have the money lined up before you go shopping. Yeah, and it's okay if it takes a few years. I remember that's I right. talked to my first lender when I was 23 or 24, and I didn't buy my first duplex till I was 27. But I had yep. a lot of work to do. So. Well, and you and I are independent contractors too, right? Which yeah. is another wrinkle. So if you're not W-2, where the income is projected forward, you and I only have the past. <laughs> we have to prove to lenders that we are consistently making money uh, in, an, in an unstructured way. And so, you know, that took a couple of years for us to get, you know, our tax returns in line with lending. So it's okay. I didn't buy my first investment until I was 43. So, you know, I've got clients at 22 sweating bullets thinking they're behind. And I'm like, yeah. I would love to be you. You're okay. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to do this. You're going to be fine. You know, it's okay. You're going to be fine. And I'm going to keep buying. I'll buy stuff at 60. It'll still make sense if you buy the right property. Absolutely. You can pass it down to the kids later on. That's right. All right. So, Ryan, really appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you if they want to just talk more or learn more about the Austin market? Yeah, my name is Ryan Kelly. Uh, I have the Ryan Kelly Group uh, with Keller Williams. You can Google that. Uh, if you're on uh, ryankellygroup.com is my website. You can also go to Bigger Pockets, uh, Ryan Kelly, and you can find the Ryan Kelly Group there. And yeah, just reach out. We'd love to chat with you. And uh, if you want to talk about Austin real estate, happy to do it. All right. Thank you. So last question, probably the most important. What is your favorite restaurant in Austin, Ryan? <laughs> so my wife and I are not that fancy. Uh, so we eat pretty normal stuff. So if I could just pick, if I just have comfort food, it's Kirby Lane. So Kirby Lane is like a, a diner, like a local mm -hmm. diner. You can eat breakfast, pancakes all, all day long. You know, so I love Kirby Lane. Um, Torchy's Tacos is great. I love Maudie's, which is Tex-Mex. If I get out of town clients, I'll probably take them to Hula Hut down on the river, which is this funky place that's Tex-Mex food, but Hawaiian themed. So it's kind of strange, but, uh, you know, you can stare at the multi-million dollar houses on the lake and eat some enchiladas. Pretty good place. Yeah, great place. Love all those places. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. I really encourage anybody listening to reach out to Ryan to learn more about Austin. And if you need help with anything in Austin, he would love to help you. But uh, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll see each other here soon. Thanks, Jordan. 